Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We are headed into the home stretch of the college football season. The World Cup is getting underway. Basketball and hockey are in full swing. And of course, we have all the pro football action you could ask for. Use our promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, with the link in the description to this episode to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts good morning good evening good afternoon or good night However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. I hope you all are having a fantabulous day. It's Tuesday, November 8th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in whenever and however you might be listening. Happy Election Day to all of y'all. Hope you are having a great day so far. If you're listening on Election Day, if you're not listening on Election Day, a little bit awkward, but there you go. There you get a election day celebration that's what was happening in the world at the time of this recording of the podcast so welcome in everybody we are going to talk about the world series today i have kicked that can down the road a couple times because i just threw on the microphones and did uh, alabama lsu coverage in the middle of the end of the world series but the jordan alvarez homer had already happened and I believe it was Schwarber who booted a baseball in left field that led to the fourth run scoring for the Astros. And by the time that happened, it was like, oh, this is just a red carpet coordination for Houston to win the championship. That bullpen hasn't given up more than one run in the entire series, nonetheless giving up three runs in three innings. So I kicked the can down the road on Astros. I just decided not feeling it on Saturday night. Sunday, ended up doing NFL Monday instead, so today's going to be Houston Astros talk, but before we get to that, I'm going to kick the Astros can down the road another 15 minutes before we finally talk about baseball, because Indianapolis Colts fired Frank Reich on Monday, and they hired Jeff Saturday with no NFL coordinator experience, no NFL head coaching experience, and no NFL position coach experience. They hired Jeff Saturday to be the head coach of the team, which I find to be incredibly, incredibly funny because as long as Jeff Saturday isn't going to be considered for the long-term head coaching position of the Colts, and as long as any of the assistants who could have gotten the job weren't going to be considered for the head coaching job, you can do whatever you want with that job, and it's going to be hilarious to me. As long as Jeff Saturday has no chance of getting the full-time head coaching job, because otherwise that is messed up, that you would bypass other candidates for another unqualified white guy to be your head coach. But in the meantime, once you fire Frank Reich and once you sit Matt Ryan for the rest of the season, it doesn't matter what you do with the assistant coaching job. And the Colts have been the absolutely funniest story all year. Two weeks ago, when they benched Matt Ryan for Sam Ellinger. I thought that was the 
funniest shit ever because, and we talked about this with Morgan from Australia, they did not have to do that. Matt Ryan was injured. Not only did they go out of their way to say, this is a benching of Matt Ryan for Sam Ellinger, they went out of their way to say, by the way, Matt Ryan has no chance of getting this job back the rest of the season. That is the funniest shit ever, because again, they did not have to do that. Matt Ryan was injured. They did not have to put him on blast like that and embarrass him. They just went out of their way to do that, which is an ultimate middle finger to Matt Ryan and an ultimate middle finger to that team. And I touched on this on NFL Monday yesterday, but I want to just revisit the Colts stat line against the Patriots, which again, the Patriots don't understand how they have a top five defense. According to DVOA, they're ranked fifth in the league in team defense right now. Don't understand how they did that given the talent level they have on the team. This is the second year in a row this has happened. Belichick, genius on defense, just the greatest defensive coach in the history of the NFL. Proven time and time again with a roster that is not that talented, with an entirely different roster than last year. They got rid of Winovich, they got rid of J.C. Jackson, they got rid of Stephon Gilmore. Doesn't matter. They're still a top-five defense with randos. And I want to point out the stat line again for the Colts. The Colts had 40 passing yards. The Colts had 120 total yards of offense. They averaged 2 yards per play. Not 2-point-something, 2.0 yards per play. The Indianapolis Colts scored three points. It should have been zero. It ended up being three. They went 0 for fucking 14 on third down conversions. They went 0 for 14 on third down conversions. You want to know how I started looking up the Colts box score from yesterday or from Sunday's game against the Patriots? Because I saw on the NFL red zone, you know how when, uh, I don't know how many of you watch NFL red zone, but when they uh, in between some plays, they pull up the, the graphics on the side that give the stats for the day, and it's like top rusher, Justin Fields, somehow. Top receiver, Tyler, uh, uh, what's his name for the, top rusher was like Tyler Algier for the, the Falcons a couple weeks ago. It was really weird, but basically they get to sacks, and it's like top sack leaders for the day. Matthew Judon, three sacks. Another Patriot, also three sacks. So I was like, Jesus Christ, two Patriots had three sacks in the game? And then I looked it up, nine total sacks. The Colts let their quarterback get sacked nine times. And I know sacks are partially a quarterback stat, but God damn, nine sacks is rough for Indianapolis. So basically, the Indianapolis Colts had a godforsaken awful game, and they fired Frank Reich coming out of the end of the season. And for a while, we'd kind of been resigned to the fact, like, similar to Nathaniel Hackett, when you have the 32nd-ranked offense in the NFL, you're probably going to get fired no matter what, especially when your team had a good offense last season. I mean, it wasn't great. Like, they couldn't throw the ball to anyone. Pittman was a wide receiver two in wide receiver one's clothing. But Jonathan Taylor made them a really good offense last season. I'm not saying they were—I think they finished 13th in the league, but they had a top-five rushing attack— clearly with Jonathan Taylor, which is a testament to how poor their passing game was. It's not like they were 32nd in the league, which is what the Colts were going into last week. And last week they had two yards per play, 120 yards of offense, three points, and went 0 for fucking 14 on third down conversions. The Indianapolis Colts weren't terrible last year. and Any team that has the 32nd ranked offense, your coach probably is going to get fired on principle, 
because something had to go catastrophically wrong for your team to finish 32nd or 31st or 30th in any category. It's where the Broncos are sitting right now. They're ranked 30th in the league in offense. I know they had a bye week, so they kind of like slipped a little bit, but Broncos are ranked 30th in offense. Colts are ranked 32nd in offense. Like you're someone's getting fired usually on principle. So we kind of like we're resigned to the fact that like Frank Reich probably doesn't deserve to be fired, but it's just kind of like it's his fifth year. They had an abysmal season offensively. It's just going to happen at some point. I didn't think it would happen so fast, but if you asked me who are the coaches who are going to get fired, I would have said Nathaniel Hackett, Cliff Kingsbury, Frank Reich, and then maybe Josh McDaniels. But like the Raiders are still 18th in the league offensively, so they've only been moderately underachieving as opposed to being catastrophically awful on offense like Arizona, Denver, and Indy. So those would have been the names I said. So Frank Wright getting fired isn't a super duper surprising move, but hiring Jeff Saturday, that adds to the funny. The Colts have just been funny as shit the last two and a half weeks. And again, I've seen a lot of people who are making the claim on diversity hiring and the fact that they bypassed other coaches whom they could be who have more NFL experience including which was the funniest thing that I saw this week John Fox John Fox was just hanging out on the Indianapolis coaching staff John Fox who again for those who don't know was coaching in a Super Bowl like eight years ago (laughs) John Fox made a Super Bowl with two different NFL teams. And when you make a Super Bowl with two different teams and you're out of the league that fast, there was something wrong there. John Fox made a Super Bowl in 2003, made a Super Bowl in 2013, and by 2020, everyone just assumed he was getting Jeff Fishered and had no path back to the league. Apparently, John Fox was a defensive assistant with the Colts, and I thought that was the funniest shit ever because he hadn't had any coaching job in five years John Fox hadn't been an assistant coach in 21 years why would you want that job unless you really really miss football he was uh, working at ESPN for like two or three years as a broadcaster you would have thought he would have gotten one of those like college football jobs at a certain point like people keep connecting Jeff Fisher to every time there's like a I don't know, a Tennessee job open or an Arizona State job or some bullshit. Like, you would have thought that he would have been connected to one of those programs. But nah, John Fox was just the defensive assistant for the Colts, which I thought was the funniest thing ever. I'd argue that John Fox, who's had 17 years of NFL head coaching experience, just as fine hiring him as Jeff Saturday, just as fine hiring whoever the defensive coordinator that replaced Eberflus is. I know people were connecting the special teams coach like the, the Raiders did with Rich Basaccia last year. By the way, quiz question for anyone out here right now. Do you know where Rich Basaccia is in the NFL? Remember that guy who led the Raiders to a playoff game last year and hand wrote his team letters on the way out the door? Does anyone know where Rich Basaccia is now? Anywhere? Anywhere? Get Got some guesses? Uh, the correct answer is the Green Bay Packers. Congratulations if you got that quiz question correct. That's where Rich Basaccia is hanging out now. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who they hire as the assistant because as soon as you fire a coach in the NFL, your season is over. And I know everyone's going to point to the Basaccia case last year. He was the first. First interim coach to ever make it to a playoff game. It's the fucking first. Like, it, it, once you fire a coach, it does not matter anymore what happens. 
because you are tanking when you fire a coach. The Raiders got rid of John Gruden because of John Gruden being a racist, a racist and a bigot and a misogynist who is probably going to get the head coaching job at South Florida now. I've heard there's like mutual interest between him and the South Florida head coaching job. Like John Gruden got fired for reasons other than performance. If I mean, he could have been fired for performance, but specifically got fired for reasons other than performance. If you're arguing the merits of you just fired a coach for performance, your season is over. You might as well just go for draft positioning. Because this isn't like hockey, where you fire a coach at the start of the season and they have 60 games to turn it around. This isn't like baseball, where you fire Joe Girardi and, and Rob Thompson has 100 games to figure out the roster that he has and be around the players. Like, it's not like that in the NFL. When you fire a coach, it's over. You're punting on the season. And if you're punting on the season, it does not matter who you hire as the next coach unless you have an actual inkling of a chance you're going to hire that guy as the next coach. Raiders had no interest in hiring Basaccia. Even as people were saying, you should hire Basaccia. Look at what he did taking over that team and still making the playoffs and winning a lot of one-possession games. Even then, if you had no interest in, in retaining Basaccia in the first place, and he's just an interim for a shitty situation, then it doesn't matter who's in that job the rest of the season, which is why they usually go to black head coaches or black former coaches. When you get those interim jobs, you usually are the guy who's left to clean up the mess which is why Steve Wilkes has that job in Carolina or why they went from Romeo Cornell to David Culley to now Lovey Smith in Houston to clean up the fuck job that was left by Bill O'Brien. And Dusty Baker in Houston is a similar case. He was hired to clean up the fuck job that was left by the Houston Astros old general manager and old coach after the cheating scandal. It's the same thing that happened with the Houston Rockets. The city of Houston really likes hiring black coaches to clean up the messes of white coaches. Same thing happened with the Houston Rockets. And so, basically, it does not matter who you hire in this spot unless that person has a chance of getting the job. And the only thing, the only time I can point to where there was actually an inkling of a chance and it worked out because they decided it was the right person for the job was Dabo Swinney with Clemson, where he had to earn the chance to get interviewed for the head coaching job, and then they gave him the full-time position. LSU had a similar situation with Orgeron. I won't argue that that was the same level of success, although they did win a national championship. Look at what Brian Kelly does in one year after Orgeron's departure. Orgeron just happened to get the keys to a Maserati of Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson and Clyde Edwards-Alaire and also happened to hire some good people and then those good people left and then he hired bad people and then they didn't make up for the fact that Ed Orgeron is a terrible coach. But like Ed Orgeron permitting, you don't see a lot of examples of hiring the interim to proceed forward because most of the time the interim is just there to do damage control and cleanup jobs. So if it's just a cleanup job, who gives a fuck who the interim coach is? It's funny that Jeff Saturday got hired as the head coach of the Colts, despite the fact he has no prior experience. Now, if Jeff Saturday gets the full-time head coaching job, that's a problem. But at this point, these games don't matter for the Colts. And by the way, the Colts don't want them to matter. The Colts want a top quarterback. 
The Colts want C.J. Stroud. The Colts want Will Levis. The Colts want Bryce Young. That's what they're playing for at this point. They don't care anymore. That's why Sam Ellinger is playing at quarterback. That's why they're going to probably hold out Jonathan Taylor the rest of the season. That's probably why Darius Leonard is going to be told, just take your time coming back healthy. It's okay. We're punting on the season. It's over. It doesn't matter who the coach is. Jeff Saturday or otherwise, it does not matter who the interim coach is because it's just a cleanup job for the 32nd ranked offense in the NFL that's going to be guaranteeing Matt Ryan $41 million over the next few years and personally went out of their way to embarrass Matt Ryan a couple of weeks ago and then put up again 0 for 14 on third downs, 2.0 yards per play, and three points that should have been zero against the Patriots. Like, this is a cleanup job at this point. It doesn't matter who you hire. The Colts are punting on this season, and they want to do that so that the next guy that they hire who they will hopefully take their time with a big pool of candidates who they'll interview and decide who the best coach is going to be. In practice, they might just hire another white guy who happens to ace the interview, and I put ace in air quotes because Nick Sirianni's interview with the Eagles, he wore a Hawaiian shirt because he was on vacation, and then the Eagles front office decided to also wear Hawaiian shirts so he felt more comfortable, and then they hired him anyways. Like, if he aces the interview or whatever that is, they'll just hire another white guy. Hopefully they take their time and pool candidates and don't consider Jeff Saturday because Jeff Saturday is not qualified to be the head coach of the Colts. But again, they went out of their way to embarrass Matt Ryan. The season's over. It's just a cleanup job. So you might as well go for the funniest guy that you can find, which is Jeff Saturday. Not qualified to be a head coach at all. Who gives a shit? These games don't matter. They're barely even NFL games at this point for the Colts. Once you fire a coach, your season is over. It does not matter. You are playing for draft positioning. Should the Colts have decided to play for draft positioning? I guess so. There's there's merits to either argument. I just think it's really funny that Jeff Saturday hired uh, that Jim Irsay hired his bro Jeff Saturday to do the cleanup job for the organization that has fallen apart, and no one can really explain exactly why they've fallen apart the way that they have. Because Chris Ballard, if he gets fired tomorrow, would probably get another GM job immediately this cycle. And I don't know exactly whether that's just a, we need a fresh face and new ideas or if the Colts, I mean, Frank Reich was always going to get fired once he have the 32nd ranked offense, but Chris Ballard still up in the air, whether he stays or goes. And I assume that he's going to be a better option than whoever the next guy is. It's just sometimes you need a different person making the decisions. And so if you get a new GM, a new coach, and a new quarterback all together while still having all the ridiculous talent that the Colts have on that team, like Quentin Nelson on a rookie contract, like Darius Leonard just now exiting a rookie contract, like Jonathan Taylor on a rookie contract, it's like three of the best players at their position in the sport. If you have that foundation and you get Bryce Young or you get, I don't know, Will Levis, I don't know who's the next best guy on that list, but like if you get one of those quarterbacks that they're shooting for or you just get a blue chip prospect in general, you're actually looking at something that could be worthy of a top head coaching candidate wanting to take that job as compared to like Man Campbell getting the shitty Lions job. Like there's something there that people will want to interview for and will pool candidates to build towards. Next nine games, or I guess eight games at this point for them, who gives a shit? Who gives a shit who the coach is going to be? As long as that coach has no chance of getting the next head coaching job, who gives a shit? It's a cleanup job. It's cleaning up for the mess that has been left by that organization, and I can't really explain why it's the mess that it is, but 
who cares if Jeff Saturday's the interim coach? It's really, really funny that they hired Jeff Saturday. The Jim Ursay called up his bro was just like, hey, can you can you do this for me? It's like how last year when Lincoln Riley left, Oklahoma called up Bob Stoops from television and were like, can you just coach a bowl game for us? All our players are transferring. We're playing against another interim coach because Mario Cristobal left Oregon. That was a funny Alamo Bowl last year. It was like Bob Stoops and the interim coach at Oregon after Cristobal and Lincoln Riley dipped out. It was really funny to watch. So what this basically is at this point, and this is kind of a silly analogy, so I don't want to like just over the top this one. This is like when you go through a breakup and you have to take the cat now. It's like someone's got to take the cat, but your partner left and won't text you anymore. So I guess the cat is just your responsibility. Basically what the cults are. And they just called up, Jim Ursay called up Jeff Saturday. It was just like, hey, can you take care of this cat for me? Just for like like two or three months while I find a new place. I'll take it after that. Just, Just two or three months need you to watch my cat for me. It's basically all this is for the Colts. I think it's really funny. It's not, I mean, again, I'm a white guy, so I don't want to go too far with this one. But like... The, the the broader societal conversation about not being qualified for this doesn't matter. Once you fire a coach and your season's over, it doesn't matter who the interim is. As long as it doesn't like as long as they don't totally nuke the whole situation more than it's already been nuked, you're fine. You're fine. They already went out of their way to embarrass Matt Ryan two weeks ago, so like at this point, whatever. Just roll with the flow and just get to the end of the season and get a high enough draft pick so you can pick a quarterback. <laughs> Episode 4. The Holy Dodger Empire continues their reign over the West. In previous years, the Holy Dodger Empire dismantled the once great Royal Cardinals, establishing a new power within the galaxy. The Holy Dodger Empire defeated the Royal Cardinals, invaded the Mill of Waukee, and vanquished the 107-win Giants. In the meantime, the Holy Dodger Empire pillaged both the Purple Rockies and the Backs of Diamond in Arizona. These invasions increased the Empire's wealth tenfold. Their resources are unmatched, their power is unquestioned. With the West and the Central firmly in control, the Holy Dodger Empire sets their sights on a new conquest, the Eastern Empire State. If the Holy Dodger Empire defeats Master Cohen and his Met army of queens, there will be nothing left to stop them from conquering the galaxy. To the south, a small resistance forms in San Diego. While outnumbered and outresourced, the resistance fights for their very existence against the tyranny of the Holy Dodger Empire. It's a changing time in the galaxy. The once great Imperial Nationals of Washington have fallen. Years earlier, the Imperial Nationals once defeated the Holy Dodger Empire at the Battle of Strasbourg. Now, they find themselves bankrupt and selling pieces to the highest bidder. In this collapse, the Holy Dodger Empire captured a great captain known as Mad Max, who helped strengthen the Holy Dodger Empire's hold on the galaxy. However, Mad Max has escaped and defected to Master Cohen and the Met Army of Queens. He will spend whatever years he has left fighting to dismantle the tyranny of the Holy Dodger Empire. And now, the legendary Imperial Captain Juan Soto has joined the Resistance 
after paying his debt to Kara the Hutt. To San Diego, Captain Juan Soto brings with him the Imperial National's mighty Josh Bell. Joining Captain Soto is Lord Hader, the supreme closer of the Mill of Waukee, called to fight by the message of the Resistance and the possibility of bringing balance to the Force. The Resistance has paid a heavy price, yet they have never been closer to defeating the Holy Dodger Empire. All right, let's put a bow on this baseball season, everybody. We're going to do eulogizing for the Astros at some point. But first of all, I just want to recap this season from the vantage point of myself, an avid San Diego baseball fan who got delivered the greatest 17-day stretch of playoff baseball, really any sport that I've experienced in my entire lifetime because the Padres hadn't won a playoff game since I, they hadn't won a playoff game at home since before I was born. I was born in 2001. They did it in 1998. Hadn't made the playoffs in my memorable lifetime, which was 2006. They made it during the pandemic year, and that was the previous best moment. And they got smoked out the playoffs by the Dodgers. And then this year, they beat the 111 win Dodgers for the greatest moment in the history of San Diego sports that to me is as good as a championship because I set the expectations at nothing. We've talked before about the emotional fandom of setting the expectations at zero when I choose to become a fan because I'm not a fan of any other team. So setting the expectations at zero maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain and totally okay with that. I got delivered an amazing 17-day stretch, and I kind of emotionally crashed after the the, uh, the World Series. I went to a, a comedy show on Friday night of Game 1, and when I checked my phone, it was 5-0 Astros, and then I got back, and I was like, what the fuck happened to the Astros when they lost 6-5? to Because it looked like the Astros were going to be totally overwhelming, and they kicked ass in Game 2, and then they got smoked out of Game 3. And then they threw a no-hitter in Game 4, and it was like, okay, now we're back on track. It's 2-2. The Astros are clearly better than the Phillies, but they are maybe going to lose this because baseball's weird. The Astros were clearly better than the Braves last year. The Braves just got hot at the right time, and Jorge Soler, who was not great before, was not great in Miami this year, won World Series MVP. Uh, Eddie Rosario, who was not on the team in July of that year, ended up winning AL, uh, NLCS MVP. Like it was just a weird, it was a weird confluence of events that led to the Braves winning the World Series. So I emotionally crashed a little bit after that happened. As a San Diego Padres fan, I got delivered the great moment of my memorable lifetime of being in Los Angeles for one of those playoff games getting to watch them beat Los Angeles and that feeling like a championship and just the overwhelming emotional joy and like all the feels that I had, it felt like I could be released from childhood self. And we've done two or three podcasts about this now going back. I'm not going to go over the top with the Padres stuff this time. Uh, Go back to two weeks ago, the Padres beat Dodgers post game show that we did. Um, it's me pouring out my soul. I think you'll really enjoy those podcasts if you're a sports fan or someone who just loves the a team or a, your hometown or anything like that. I'm getting emotional just talking about it again now, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that that show again this week because uh, we we've done this a couple times now. I just want to say that 
the context of this season and this postseason emotionally is the highest ride that I've been on in a while. And God, I love postseason baseball. Love watching postseason baseball so much. And the stakes get ratcheted up so much higher than the regular season. I care so little about regular season baseball. And I also care so much about playoff baseball. I love watching playoff baseball every year. And this year was extra special from an emotional standpoint because I had my team and that magical run for the first time in my life with San Diego. So it was just an extra magical postseason run. And I spent 60 hours either watching baseball or driving to Los Angeles from Sacramento, which is like a five-hour drive for those of you with context. Like 10 hours driving and 50 hours watching baseball over 17 days was pretty cool and having that was the the moment I'll take away from this postseason in addition to like moments that I'll remember I don't know which one will stick out years from now sometimes it's weird ones like the one that sticks out from last year is me and Morgan being on a podcast when Kike Hernandez hit the walk-off in game two against the Astros in the ALCS and Jorge Soler's home run to lead off game six of the World Series It's just little moments like that are the ones I remember. I don't know which ones it'll be this year, whether it's Jeremy Pena's 18-inning home run, whether it's the Mariners' seven-run comeback, whether it was watching Carlos Correa interview Jeremy Pena, an incredibly awkward interview on TBS, because, like, Carlos Correa was bad in the postseason last year. I think Carlos Correa hit three for 30-something in the World Series last year. I don't think he had that many at-bats, so maybe it was, like, two for 20-something in the World Series last year, and Alex Bregman also hit poorly in the World Series last year, and that was a big reason why the Astros lost. The Astros didn't have the reinforcements to sustain Carlos Correa and Jose Altuve, which at the time was their two and four hitters. I'm sorry, not Altuve, Alex Bregman. Their two and four hitters going basically a combined like four for 40 or four for 50 in the World Series, Houston didn't have the offensive firepower to sustain that given how good the Braves offense was with the makeshift group of Freeman and uh, Duvall and, of course, the, the Jorge Soler, Eddie Rosario additions where they, they rebuilt half their offense in one post in at the trade deadline and won the championship. Um, what's crazy this year is that you just slide in Jeremy Pena for Carlos Correa and Jeremy Pena wins... ALCS MVP, World Series MVP, hit over 300 in the World Series, hit got a base hit in all 6 games of the World Series, which like is the first time that's happened in, since like the ridiculous Randy Arozarena World Series and then before that like 7 years prior. What's crazy about that run for Peña is that you slide him in for Correa. And that's that's a difference right there of infinite proportions from where the Astros were last year. And then the pitching staff all comes together. I know McCullers got pitches tipped and, and a bit of injury. So like McCullers was on shaky ground and he was their number two pitcher the whole season. But like instead of the 2019 team, which was the three best pitchers in, in the American League, which was Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole, and Zach Granke. And then McCullers as the fourth option in 2019 when they lost the fluky championship to the Nationals. They should have won. That was the most overwhelming team I've seen until this year's Astros team. Like, they had the three best pitchers in baseball, which was Granke, Cole, and Verlander. In 2017, it was 
Verlander, and then maybe McCullers, and then maybe Dallas Keuchel. But from 2017 to this year, the entire pitching staff besides Verlander has flipped. And between 2019 and now, other than Verlander and McCullers, the entire pitching staff has flipped. So you slide in Framber Valdez as the number two. Last year in the World Series, it was Jose Urquidy as the number three pitcher. This year, it was uh, Christian Javier starting game four. And Christian Javier threw a combined no-hitter in that game four. So you slide in Christian Javier for Zach Granke. You slide in uh, you slide in Framber Valdez, who was on the team last year but wasn't the number two starter for game for game two and the closeout game six. Wasn't Framber Valdez. You slide Valdez into that. You slide Christian Javier. You slide Jose Urquidy, who got moved to a, a replacement role in this postseason, but last year was a huge part of what they were doing on the World Series team. You revamp the pitching staff and slide those guys in, and the pitching staff is as good as the 2019 team all over again. And you slide in Jeremy Pena for Carlos Correa, and the Houston Astros have an exponential shift in offense, so much so, and I couldn't believe this when I saw it on the broadcast. Jose Altuve had zero RBIs in the entire postseason. Entire postseason, Jose Altuve had zero runs batted in. Jose Altuve, to start the postseason, went 1 for 28. 1 for 28. Again, this is a guy who was the best player on the 2019 team. Won MVP in 2017, the year they won the championship. Is still making 20-something million dollars this year and is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Even And this year wasn't even a bad player was going to start in the All-Star game, if not for injury. Jose Altuve went 1-for-28 to start the postseason, and the Houston Astros went 7-0 and in those games. Jose Altuve went 1-for-28, and they went 7-0. and Whereas last year, Alex Bregman and Carlos Correa. I have to go back. We did a podcast on Halloween of 2021 talking about this very topic. Correa and Bregman for the Astros went like four for 46 in the World Series. I don't have that number exactly correct, but I'm pretty sure it was like under 100 between the two of them or just slightly over 100 batting average. Between the two of them, they go four for 46 ballpark and that's a huge reason why they don't win the championship against the Braves because they couldn't find enough offense to sustain against Atlanta an Atlanta team that had a makeshift offense itself but an offense that got hot at the right time it wasn't even super hot either like it was just an average offense that Houston wasn't able to counteract with whether it was with Alvarez or whether it was Brantley or whoever else you want to point to even Altuve Yuli Gurriel just wasn't there. There wasn't enough offense to get them over the the hump in 2021. And this year, they were so well sustained that Altuve could go 1 for 28 and they go 7 and 0 in those games. That's a testament to the rest of the lineup around Altuve and the pitching staff that was totally unhittable both out of the bullpen and the starting lineup against the Yankees, against the Mariners, and at the end against the Phillies. The Phillies had two runs the final three games of the series. 
had two total runs. One of them came on a Schwarber home run. The other one came on another Schwarber home run. God damn it, their only runs the last two games of the series were Kyle Schwarber solo home runs. The last three games of the entire series, they got two solo home runs from Schwarber. That was it. Valdez and Urikidi. I'm sorry, no, Valdez and Ryan Presley out of the bullpen and, uh, what is it, Moreno, I think his name is, Morena and Verlander and Javier were totally unhittable. Totally unhittable. The Javier, Verlander, Valdez trio only gave up solo homers to Kyle Schwarber the entire final three games of the playoffs. So even if Altuve goes 0 for 28 or 1 for 28, they're still winning those games. And that's the ultimate testament to the Houston Astros dynasty because no one else gets to age like that. No one else gets to go 1 for 28 and win the championship. And Altuve played better in the World Series. He still finished with zero RBIs, which I think was more of a byproduct of Altuve being the number one hitter on the team more than it was Altuve playing poorly because he had like two doubles. He He had the single that then scored on the Jordan Alvarez home run in game six. Like he played better in the World Series. One for 28 to start and still going seven and oh is an absolute testament to the unit and the machine that that Houston Astros team has built. And I've been saying for years, this is a dynasty with or without another championship. Baseball's weird. No team has won multiple championships since the Giants a decade ago. The last prior to the Astros winning the championship, the last eight champion the last eight years had eight different champions. And if the Phillies had won this year, it would have been nine different champions in nine years. Baseball's random sometimes. This was not random at all. This was Houston rolling through the playoffs, which I said at the start, this is a random year. If I if there's one series I felt most confident in, it was Houston against Seattle. And then when Houston got to play the Yankees, Houston was going to win in, I said, five and a half. They won in four. They just swept out the Yankees because they were clearly better than New York. Offense, defense. I, I heard uh, Mike Schur, who, who goes on the Levitard show, he was saying like 23 of the 25 players on the Astros were better than the Phillies. And that is just a machine that Houston has built up and no one gets to age like that because no one is the Houston Astros. And I've been saying for years now, they are the best thing. They're the best dynasty in baseball since the 1990s New York Yankees. Over eight years, those Yankee teams went to seven league championship series, six World Series, and won four of them between 1995 and 2003, which is, I guess you could say 2004 because they went to the ALCS that year and were up 3 0. But you could say the period between 1996 and 2004, those nine years. Yankees went to eight league championship series, six World Series, four championships. And you could go down the list of any of those teams that have built up a resume similar to what Houston has. Houston in six years, six league championship series, four World Series, two championships. You could go to the San Francisco Giants in the mid-2000s. You could go between 2010 and 2014, five years three playoff appearances, three World Series, three championships. They won the three championships, no question. Championship culture will dictate three is greater than two. You know, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, championship culture is incredibly overvalued within sports culture. I reject championship culture 
as not just the most important, but even a significant way of doing the analysis of these types of teams, especially in baseball where shit's random all the time. Championship culture is not, it's important. It's not as important in evaluating sustained success of dynasties as league championship appearances, World Series appearances, and championships. I say the greatest testament to the New England Patriots dynasty is not the six championships, it's the 15 AFC championships in 20 years. That's the greatest testament to what the Patriots built. 15 AFC championships in 20 years. The greatest testament to Aaron Rodgers' greatness, the equivalent of, well, he made six NFC championships in 15 years, and the best team he ever had didn't even make the NFC championship because they lost to the Giants. So that's basically seven elite teams in 15 years with Aaron Rodgers. The testament to the Houston Astros and the reason they are the best thing in baseball since those New York Yankees of the early 2000s, which means by that standard, the best baseball team of my lifetime. The reason the Houston Astros are the best baseball team of my lifetime is sustained success across a decade and with different cores of that team. And like I said, when Altuve, and Altuve is the the context to look through the lens of for this team. If Altuve can go 1 for 28 and they go 7 and 0, no one gets to age like that into their 30s. Not my, not Miguel Cabrera, not Albert Pujols, not Paul Goldschmidt, not Mike Trout, nobody. Not even Bryce Harper who just made it to the World Series. Nobody gets to age like that into their 30s. And that's because nobody is the Houston Astros. Nobody has been the the sustained model of success the Houston Astros have had. Not just the sustained model of success, the machine where get rid of Lunau, get rid of A.J. Hinch, get rid of the assistant general managers who go get other jobs or that one assistant general manager who said the shitty thing to women and is a clear misogynist and got fired as a result of that scandal with Roberto Osuna. You can toss all of that out, bring in a new general manager, bring in a new support staff, bring in a new team, bring in a new coach with Dusty Baker who finally gets that championship. And what do they do? 2020, one game away from the World Series. 2021, make it to the World Series. 2022, win the championship. You can toss everything aside and the foundation is still there. And there's there's two great books that have been written on this. The MVP Machine and uh, the the MVP machine, I've, I forget who wrote the book now, but um, I'll look it up real quick. The MVP machine does a great job of talking about the second Moneyball revolution, which is where Moneyball, it's by Ben Lindbergh. Um, it, it has some propping up of, of Trevor Bauer, and that's not as great anymore, but the MVP machine is a really good book if you want to read about why baseball's second Moneyball is using analytics and data to build better players instead of building better teams. Moneyball was used to evaluate players and find value within the margins. And once that wasn't a competitive edge, teams started using analytics to develop players. It's how Justin Turner goes from getting cut by the Mets to being a a perennial all-star with the Dodgers. Max Muncy gets cut by the A's, turns into a star with the Dodgers. And from the bottom levels of the minor leagues up to the top, the Houston Astros fired 70% of their support staff in the first four years of Lunau being in charge, which is a really messy thing. Like these, this is ruining livelihoods of people in that profession. And 
the top to bottom overhaul of the organization had its pros and it had its unintended consequences. It allowed them to develop players differently at every level of their minor league organization, all working in unison. And it also gave Jeff Lunau an over-the-top level of power control that ultimately ended up being detrimental to him, the people that he was employing because of the frat culture that exists around baseball, and ultimately the biggest cheating scandal in baseball in 50 years. Those are the unintended consequences of building that type of culture. And I'm not saying that, that there's a morality pro or con in that situation. We set the morality wherever we want to set it. It's the reason I've never been upset about the Astros cheating scandal. Never. From the very beginning of when the punishments were handed down, I said, and this was very early in our podcasting days, you probably won't be able to find this podcast anymore. It was so early in 2020, but I've been pretty consistent since then, which is the Houston Astros, just the, the baseball just punished based on public relations instead of actually, like they just needed to punish someone for this scandal instead of admitting their mistakes. So they got rid of Lou now who sues baseball and he'll never get back into the sport and AJ Hinch gets fired and Alex Cora gets fired for a year for the basically suspended a year by the Red Sox. Carlos Beltran never gets to hire get never gets to manage the Mets. Basically three managers and a general manager get fired as a result of this cheating scandal. Players got immunity, feels like they got away with something. For people who care about the integrity of the game, they got really upset and wanted to boo all the Astros and view them as villains because they weren't held accountable for cheating the game. But then all of a sudden, when other people are not held accountable for actual crimes, they kind of turn a blind eye and they don't care about the morality. It's placing moralities in places that don't agree with my sensibilities. So again, back to the original point about the Astros, you set the morality wherever you want to set it with the Astros. The unintended consequences are you build a culture in which, uh, I forgot, his, his first name is Brandon, but basically the the assistant general manager under Lunau after the Astros win the ALCS in 2019, yells at female reporters, I told you about Osuna, I told you about Osuna, who has been credibly accused. I, I believe there have been credible findings that weren't pursued in court because his wife didn't um, want to pursue charges further of domestic assault and beating up his wife and, and child support issues because he was being cruel to his child. And... I don't know all the details off the top of my head here, but basically you have that as an unintended consequence. You have 70% of people losing their job within the Astros organization. These are, and, and you have Lunau fostering a culture that it, most people don't regard very highly on his way out the door. And you can get rid of all of that and keep those institutions in place and keep those, those organizational philosophies in place. And because you had a chance to work and develop people like Garrett Cole when he arrives or like Justin Verlander and reviving his career, that's a competitive advantage that other teams won't be able to find. And by the way, you're able to develop guys like Jeremy Pena, who was a first round pick in 2018 from the Dominican Republic, moved to Rhode Island. He's a son of a former baseball player. I just thought it was funny that Jeremy Pena played baseball in Rhode Island and Maine when he was in college. And he's a first-round pick who took four years to develop through the system. And ultimately, you slide him in for Carlos Correa, and there's the offense that you lost that potentially cost you a championship in 2021. And by the way, you just saved $35 million per year 
replacing Carlos Correa with Jeremy Pena. You traded for Michael Brantley, who is a key piece of the 2019 and 2021 teams. This year, he gets hurt. You slide in Kyle Tucker. It's a guy who hit 30 home runs, and he's making less money than Michael Brantley. When George Springer's contract comes up and he signs for $25 million a year over eight years in Toronto, they didn't get a perfect solution. Kyle Tucker made up for the offensive loss of George Springer. Chaz McCormick, who's not the greatest hitter, slides in defensively for George Springer. And that combination ends up making up for the loss of Springer while also saving $28 million. Other teams can't do that. The Houston Astros are this great exception, and it's been this way for years. Other teams can't just develop and slide those people in. You can't lose Garrett Cole, which is a $35 million dip, and Framber Valdez gives you the same production in the 2022 playoffs, and Christian Javier gives you the same production you were getting from Zach Granke, which saves you another $27 million. And theoretically, you have to go pay that to other people, Of course, that's definitely a concern. You look up and down the roster, and there's not a whole lot of people who that money is placated for. Obviously, Verlander has a giant contract. Obviously, Altuve has a giant contract. But both of those were the case in 2017 and 2019, being the foundational pieces of those Astros teams. So if you subtract Cole, you subtract Granke, you subtract Carlos Correa, you subtract George Springer, you subtract Michael Brantley... All key pieces of the greatest team I've ever seen in 2019 with the Astros who lost to the Nationals on a weird fluky situation. You take away those pieces and you find, or you don't find, you develop cheaper replacements for those players. It's absolutely remarkable the competitive advantage and the wagon that that they have built. So much so that Jordan Alvarez, who is a looking at it, I mean, it's early in his career. He's putting up Hall of Fame caliber numbers early on in his career, who he himself was traded for as a double-A prospect for a month of a relief, or basically for a year of a relief pitcher from the Dodgers. And while I like to joke on the internet that Jordan Alvarez is on that Barry Bonds diet in terms of his muscle mass gains from triple-A to now, Jordan Alvarez is a guy who hit that massive home run to start off the playoffs against the Mariners. One of the coolest moments I've seen where he hits a walk-off three-run homer down two. They bring in Robbie Ray out of the bullpen. He just launches a home run to kick off the playoff for the for the Astros. And then in game two, hits another home run to put away the Mariners to the point where they got no chance of coming back. And then they play an 18-inning game in Game 3, and they lose 1-0 because of Jeremy Pena's home run. Just, Jordan Alvarez is the by far MVP of the the first round of the playoffs. Has a terrible NLCS. Or, sorry, ALCS. Terrible ALCS where he hits under 200 with no home runs and I think only one RBI. And it doesn't matter. They go 4-0. And then he gets to the World Series, and he's his playoff average is down to 200, despite the fact he hit like 450 and people were intentionally walking him against the Mariners. So he hits under 200 for the next two rounds of the playoffs, and then just 
bangs out the game-winning three-run homer over the batter's eye in center field, 452 feet. And he gets to be the hero of that moment. As long as you get that one, everything else in between you can sustain. Philadelphia could not sustain with Bryce Harper and Kyle Schwarber just hitting keg softball homers. And they could not sustain, the Yankees could not, with Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton just mashing playoff home runs. It was good enough to beat Cleveland. Game 5 against Cleveland, win or go home, they scored 5 runs, a a 2-run homer from Judge and a 3-run homer from Stanton. I actually, I don't know if that was exactly correct, but their only runs in the game came from Judge and Stanton. That I definitively remember. Um, The Yankees could not sustain that against Houston. And that is the great, like no one gets that privilege. No one gets, I I did get it correct, by the way. Uh, Judge hit a two-run homer and Stanton hit a three-run homer. Or sorry, Judge hit a solo homer, Stanton hit a three-run homer. And that was how they won 5-1 to one against Cleveland. Four of their five runs came on Judge and Stanton homers, and that's good enough to beat Cleveland, especially with the strong pitching staff. I, I believe it was Nasty Nestor, Nestor Cortez. Another one of these uh, MVP machine guys, like Nestor Cortez was a reliever in Baltimore and Seattle, and then gets to the Yankees, and they develop him into a legitimate number two starter. Uh, the Dodgers did that with Tony Gonsolin to start the season. He was about to start in the All-Star game. After Tony Gonsolin had been a reliever for years with the Dodgers. The best teams are able to use analytics to develop players. And that is their competitive advantage. And slowly but steadily, everyone is gaining that competitive advantage over the decade. Everyone's in a way catching up to Houston in that respect. And yet Houston's the only team that can put together that machine. That can put together that machine that doesn't require them to trade for a Stanton. Although they do make those trades every now and again for Granke, for Verlander, for Garrett Cole. Which they only gave up Joe Musgrove and a prospect who's still the third baseman for the Pirates. And not really a big miss on their part. He wouldn't have been on the World Series roster for them this year. But you give up those pieces. But then you keep the ones that you can replace Correa with Pena. You can replace, I mean, I mean, I don't know who Jordan is replacing at this point, but you just slide in Jordan Alvarez. In the past four years, he's put up Hall of Fame level numbers. You slide in Kyle Tucker offensively and Chaz McCormick defensively to replace Michael Brantley and George Springer. And you slide in Framber Valdez to replace Garrett Cole and save $30 million. No one else can do that. And so that's the reason why Jose Altuve finds himself in a position where he can go one for 28 in the playoffs in the first two rounds, and they, they go 7-0 and in those games. And if not for blowing that big lead in game one where they were up 5-0, which is a situation that if Houston is ever up 5-0, you expect them to win. If they don't lose that game, Houston goes... 11 and 1 in the postseason. I mean, the difference is 11 and 1 versus 11 and 2, but let's say they go 11 and 2 in the postseason and throw a no hitter in the World Series and basically shut out the entire Phillies lineup for three consecutive games with a combination of pitching and bullpen with guys who, again, Christian Javier, Framber Valdez, 
who were not on the 2019 team, were not acquired by the organization, and now provide incredible value to the team because of their ability to develop. And they were explaining this during the series. Framber Valdez was, I mean, again, they're doing the kind of like suffer porn, which I don't really like on broadcast, but they were talking about how Framber Valdez was a guy who didn't think he was going to get a, a, a contract offer when he was 18 in the Dominican Republic. And then the Astros bring him on a dirt field and he pitches in front of him and then they offer him a minor league deal and then, you know, develops into the guy who he is now. And Dusty Baker talking to him last year about how Framber needed the confidence to develop into a number two. And he looks similar to 2019 Garrett Cole. Like he's not going to win the Cy Young this year. Garrett Cole finished second in the Cy Young that year, but the difference is like he had 20, 24 quality starts during the season, which is five plus innings of three or less runs. He had 24 quality starts, like 80% of his starts were quality starts this season for Houston. And Framber Valdez represents the Houston Astros model. Christian Javier represents the Houston Astros model, where that used to be Zach Greinke. They gave up four prospects, two of whom were actually pretty good on the Diamondbacks now. They gave up four prospects and $100 million for Zach Greinke, and then did the same thing with Christian Javier, who was developed, drafted by the team, developed or signed with the team, developed through their system, and now provides incredible value as the guy who throws a no-hitter in Game 4 of the World Series. Framber Valdez gives you the same production you got from two years of Garrett Cole, and they had to give up Joe Musgrove, again, a prospect who didn't turn into much for the... If you want to follow the reductive pattern of that, when Musgrove gets traded to the Padres, the Padres traded an all-star closer in David Bednar. They gave up essentially an all-star closer, a starting third baseman, and whatever money they gave to Garrett Cole... And then they just did the same thing with Framber Valdez. N- no one can do that. Other teams can do it one, two, three times. Even the Dodgers at a certain point couldn't keep producing that level of player. And they had to go trade for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. They gave up all their young players for Trey Turner and Max Scherzer. And then they gave up even more of them for um, for Mookie Betts. With Mookie Betts and Trey Turner and then signing Freddie Freeman for $160 million, that represented the 111-win Dodgers. Sure, they can do it with Will Smith. Sure, Cody Bellinger can win an MVP, and he's homegrown and developed through the system. At a certain point, they gave up their top five prospects in order to go get Trey Turner, Max, uh, Trey Turner, Max Scherzer, Mookie Betts, and Freddie Freeman. They had to give up a lot to get that. And that's how Houston won 2017. Getting Justin Verlander was how Houston won that championship. Doing it in 2019, trading for Garrett or trading for Garrett Cole after winning the championship, and then trading for Zach Granke at the deadline in 2019, that's how they won that year. Now they did it totally di- they did it differently than they did the last two times. Cuz the first championship the core of the team was Dallas Keuchel Jose Altuve, World Series MVP George Springer. All those guys were there before Lunau got there. Keuchel, Altuve, and Springer. All three of those players were on the Astros before Lunau rebuilt the team in 2011. 
what they did in the interim was be bad enough to draft Alex Bregman number two overall. Be bad enough to draft Carlos Correa number one overall. That's how they built the the 2015 team that went to the ALCS and how they built the 2017 team that went on to win the World Series was they were bad enough for long enough to build into a championship team. What they did this time is they developed players while finding value. They just swapped out Carlos Correa, the guy who they tanked four years to acquire. They For three years, the Astros had the worst record of any team in baseball. And it was like the worst three-year the worst three year stretch of any team in 40 years. They got Correa with the number one pick. They got Bregman with the number two pick. And they took Mark Apple, who never ended up signing with them. But basically, all those years of tanking got them Correa and Bregman. All those years of losing turned into Correa and Bregman. At the very, very tops of the draft. The same way that the Nationals tanked, got Strasburg and Bryce Harper, swapped Harper for Juan Soto, won a championship in 2019, in addition to all the other little moves that they made. Houston's way of getting to the top was tanking and getting Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman in addition to having Altuve and having Springer and having Cy Young Award winner Dallas Keuchel already on the team. In the minors, yes, but already in the organization as former first-round picks. This one was totally different, and the last four years have been totally different. The 2019 team, which should have won the championship for the, the, the Astros, that one was totally different. 2021 was totally different, and the reason they didn't win in 2021 in large part was... They didn't have the offense to sustain Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman going 4 for 46 in the World Series. And this year, they somehow built a machine that could withstand Jose Altuve going 1 for 28 to start the playoffs and going 7 and 0 in those games. And like I said at the very beginning, no one ever gets to age like that. Because there has been no team like the Houston Astros. Altuve gets to win this championship, which will add to his Hall of Fame resume. And again, Altuve played fine in the World Series. Had multiple big hits, multiple extra base hits. He didn't hit a homer, didn't have an RBI, but he had two doubles. Again, he was on third base when Jordan hit the game-winning home run, the World Series clinching home run, like whatever. Like he played fine in the World Series. But to go one for 28, to start the playoffs and for them to go 7 and 0 will theoretically add to Jose Altuve's legacy and his his Hall of Fame case. That second championship is something that championship culture will hold up because we can't remember everything. I can't even remember exactly what Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman's batting averages were in the World Series last year. And I cared so much about that World Series because it was so fascinating. I can't even remember what their batting averages exactly were in those playoffs. Because you can't remember everything, and so championship culture makes it easy to remember stories and tell stories. But what it also does, in addition to remembering the historic cheating scandal, diminishes just how incredible this Houston Astros run has been. Because they have adapted and changed multiple times and built the infrastructure that allows them to be championship good every single year. Every single year. Six consecutive ALCS appearances, four World Series, two championships. That's a byproduct of the change they've they've put in, again, with two different regimes. And they've done it three different ways now. 
They've built winning teams three different ways with two different executives. Yes, the organizational stability still intact from top to bottom that they, again, Lunau overhauled in the first four years of the team. And yet they are intact with three different versions of the team that have basically won championships. Because again, the 2019 Astros team was better than Washington. They were they, It's the most overwhelming team I've ever seen was the 2019 Astros team. Better than 2017 Houston, maybe better than this year's Houston team. That 2019 Astros team was absolutely ridiculous. The three best pitchers in the entire American League. Justin Verlander, Garrett, Garrett Cole went 27 consecutive games without allowing more than one earned run. And he didn't even win the Cy Young that year because his own teammate beat him out for it. 27 starts without allowing more than one earned run. And he lost the Cy Young to Justin Verlander. That 2019 Astros team was ridiculously good. Ridiculously good. And they didn't win the championship. That was the best of the six. I mean, maybe this year's team is better than that one. But like, of the five previous iterations, 2019 was the best Astros team. That was when everything came together. When they still had Correa. They still had Bregman. They still had Springer. All of those guys that they had tanked and developed and built up for the 2017 run, plus the guys that they had spent tons of prospect capital to acquire, like Michael Brantley, like Garrett Cole, like Zach Granke, like, unfortunately, Roberto Osuna. That's what the strength of the 2019 team was for Houston. It was the best of the five. And what they've done now is they've taken the remnants of that team and built up one that has... Hall of Fame caliber Jordan Alvarez, building his case towards that as the years go on, perhaps. And you have Pena in there for Correa. The part of the reason why they didn't win in 2021, slide Pena in for Correa, wins ALCS MVP, wins World Series MVP. Slide in Kyle Tucker and Chaz McCormick, replacing Brantley and Springer. And with value, replacing Granke and Cole with Javier and Framber Valdez. And Urikidi last year replacing Garrett Cole and being able to make it to a World Series and come within two games of winning a championship. And the pitching staff wasn't the reason they lost the 2021 World Series. You could throw Urikidi in that conversation as well, and he's obviously not the same pitcher because of what Javier and Valdez do in building rotation. But Houston has built up something that now has done it three different ways. They tanked to the top in 2017 and rehauled that entire organization. 2019 was a combination of that plus using their excess prospect capital to go all in on the 2019 championship. And God damn it, they were great. And then you level the organization theoretically with cheating punishments that deduct picks and money and remove your general manager and remove the, the manager and get two other managers fired, you theoretically remove the competitive advantage. And then they turn around. It took a couple years to really get it back going, but you turn around 2020, one game away from the World Series, they lose in the seventh game to the, the Tampa Bay Rays on a neutral site in the COVID year. Make the World Series in 2021. Win the World Series in 2022. That in and of itself, that three-year stretch signifies the best run any team has had since the 
Dodgers in the mid-2010s, and before them, the Giants or the Rangers. The uh, Kansas City only had a two-year run. They only made the playoffs twice between 2014 and 2015. That three-year run you can point to with Houston is the best run of, uh, in like half a decade or if not a decade because the best years of the Dodgers over the past 10 years was NLCS in 2016, World Series lost 2017, World Series lost 2018. That's the best three-year stretch I can find going back to the Rangers and Giants of the early 2010s. The three years post-cheating scandal for the Astros are somehow the best run of three years any team has had in a decade. You can combine that with the three years pre-cheating scandal becoming public and the way they built up those two teams and the the 2017 team winning the championship and the 2019 team being the best of the six teams. You could point to that and say that the six-year run is totally unprecedented. Each of the three-year runs has been the best three-year run you could point to in the last, last 10 to 15 years you could find each of those three-year runs being the best three-year run any team has had. And when you put it all together, it is totally unprecedented. It is the best run any team has had in the last 20 years in baseball. And as I said off the very top when we started this about an hour ago, it's what allows Jose Altuve to go 1-for-28, the team to go 7-0, and and for them to just be an overwhelming juggernaut that as soon as you take away the 111-win Dodgers, courtesy of Captain Juan Soto in the uh, Rebel Alliance in San Diego, once you take away the Dodgers, nothing's standing in their way. Not the Yankees, not the little brother Yankees, for God's sakes, not the little brother Yankees, not the, the Phillies, who my favorite analysis is that the Phillies are like a guy who drank five beers who jumped a fence and found a a truck with the keys in there and just started kind of driving it around not the phillies not the yankees the little brothers not boston last year only randy arena <laughs> only the chaos of randy arena <laughs> during the 2020 pandemic year was enough to stop houston only a, a once in a lifetime punishment from cheating scandals which I don't actually care about that much because I don't put my moralities in that place. And by the way, one of the things I said in 2020, they will find new technology and they will evolve. What happened? Pitchcom. They found new technology. They evolved past sign stealing. What do you think the cheating scandal was for? It's so that you prevent it in the future. You gave the players immunity. Now make it so it's more difficult to steal signs in the future. And lo and behold, they created Pitchcom technology. Pretty cool how that happens, how cheating scandals lead to incentives that invest in money that leads to pitchcom devices that now eliminate sign stealing, huh? Pretty incredible how that works. That's called evolution. It's called change. It's called learning from your mistakes. That's the thing I was saying in 2020, and it happened. You look at what the Astros have done, only Randy Rosarena was enough to keep them from possibly making a fifth World Series and winning four or five just the randomness of baseball prevents them from winning in 2019 shortcomings in 2021 keep them from winning the championship and even though they only got two titles at this point it's still 
baseball has provided no other alternatives because in the last decade, no baseball team has won two championships. None. Only the Astros. 2014 Giants, 2015 Royals, 2016 Cubs, 2017 Astros, 2018 Red Sox, 2019 Nationals, 2020 Dodgers, 2021 Braves, 2022 Houston. Last 10 years, no one has won two championships. You can hold up that standard. Baseball has provided no other alternative other than the Astros in the last decade. You can go back two decades for the closest team that looks anything like the dominance of the Houston Astros. So dominant and such a machine. As I keep saying, Jose Altuve can go 1 for 28. They still go 7-0, and and we get to add to his legacy just as we add to the now-growing legacies of Jeremy Pena and Jordan Alvarez and Framber Valdez, the same way we did it a few years ago with Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander and names that we all knew, now we get to learn new names like Jeremy Pena and Framber Valdez and Christian Javier and Jordan Alvarez, who will continue to make this machine work perhaps for another few years. Perhaps they never get back to this point. It's already the greatest run any team has had in baseball in the last 25 years. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. Appreciate each and every one of you for stopping into the show. As always, leave a five-star review, a download, all of the good stuff to help support this wonderful, wonderful podcast. As always, everybody, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.